Welcome to You Might Hate This Book, where each episode one of us will recommend a book to the other. A book that we love that we suspect our co-host might hate. Well, hate is a strong word. How about falls outside of their traditional scope of interest. Fine, that's fair. A book they would never have chosen to read otherwise. We'll read the assigned book, then come back together to discuss. Did you love it? Or did you hate it? So you agree we might hate it. (sighs) Yeah, you might hate it. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Hannah. And you might hate this book. Stephanie, <laughs> we are here. We are here. It has been a week. It has. What's going on with you? Just a lot of stuff at work, and mm-hmm. uh, I volunteered myself for many things that I like doing, but now I have to do this. I yes. have to do them. Yes. One of the best pieces of advice I got in college was when someone throws you a ball, you don't have to catch it. I know, but <laughs> I I wanted to play. I, I know it's hard when you're like, but but. Yeah, so I'm part of a singing group and with a couple of our right. friends. So we're having rehearsals for that. And I agreed to be the set designer yes. for the alumni show for, you know, the theater group that we're involved in. Um, so, yeah, I'm doing both of those things, mm-hmm. which are fun and cool, but also. <laughs> yes, also things. That there are also things that I keep doing. Yes. As a working adult and mother. <laughs> yeah. Um but I designed my first set, and people who know things say it was pretty good. Yes, so. no, it's very good. Okay, well, thank mm-hmm. you. Yes, I like it. Yes, Hannah's husband, Brendan, is a set designer. Yes. And so I was like, please affirm Which me. Which doesn't make me an authority <laughs> by proxy, but... But I think it does. <laughs> but I went to both of them and was like, please affirm yeah. me. Tell me nice things. Mm-hmm. So It's good. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, well, I have a very important question for you. I am ready. If you got to pick your name, what would you choose? Oh, I don't know. Did you ever want a different name as a kid? Not really. I remember in third grade, I think it was third grade, we read a book in class called Hannah is a Palindrome. (laughs) Because my name is spelled the same backwards and forwards, and I always took some pride in that. So I was always fine with Hannah. Yeah. If I had to change it, maybe Alice. That, that's a good choice for you. Yeah. Uh, because of Alice in Wonderland. And I like old-fashioned names. Yeah. I never had a girl child to give that name to, so. <laughs> <laughs> when I was a kid, I, like, seven or eight, I became obsessed with the name Alyssa. Like, really? I thought it was the coolest name. And I was like, if I could pick a name, I would want to be Alyssa. Which, like, I have no affinity for that name now. No. I don't even know that I know an Alyssa that I even like. Sorry if you're the the one Alyssa in my life I'm forgetting I about don't who know I like. An Alyssa. And you don't seem like an Alyssa. No, I could call you an Allie. I think you could pull off Allie. Maybe, yeah. But, yeah. I just I now I think it's so weird that seven year old me was like, "This is who I really am." Like, but it's definitely not. You know, what? if you're Allie and I'm Alice, we can just be Al squared and. <laughs> A new podcast name. (laughs) I remember being obsessed with the name Clara when I was a little girl. That's a good name. I think from the Nutcracker. But I named all my dolls that. I didn't want it for myself. Yeah. I I don't know. I'm totally fine with my name, but I just always thought that, you know, certain other names were just 
more fun. Yeah. I, I've never had angst about my name, though. Yeah, I haven't either. So good job, Mom and Dad. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Mom and Dad. <laughs> oh, why did you ask me that question? Um, Mostly because I walked into this room not knowing what I was going to ask you. <laughs> good question. And I texted one person to say, what should I ask Hannah? But they did not respond in the <laughs> needed well, time. it does have to do with identity. Yes, and I also thought about this while I was writing the summary for this book, that um, at least two of these people's names could go either way, gender-wise. And I was like, I feel like in this summary I'm going to have to say, this person is a woman. So, oh, right. Yeah, so okay. I was just, I was kind of thinking about names. So cool. that might be where it came from. Okay, well, give us a summary. Yeah, so this week's book is Conversations with Friends by Sally Rooney. And again, this is a mix-up episode. Wait, so, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> I'm so glad. I don't know why I did that. We're not cutting it. It's okay, staying. fine. <laughs> Luckily, Hannah is very aware of how nerdy she is and how, like... <laughs> unapologetically dorky so i don't even think that that would embarrass you no. to leave it in yeah i i tell people you can't embarrass me it, my grandfather passed away many years ago but if you had met him you would understand why you can't embarrass me he did it for us <laughs> no i'm good again this is a mix-up episode yeah. where i recommended a book to hannah that i did not like but i thought that maybe she would like right so, again, this is Conversations with Friends by Sally Rooney, and here's a little summary. Cool, cool. This book is narrated by 21-year-old Frances, who is a woman, and tells the story of the love quadrangle of Frances, Bobby, Melissa, and Nick. Um, Frances is a graduate student and aspiring poet. She and Bobby, her ex-girlfriend and current best friend, perform spoken word performances of Francis's work, which catches the attention of the wealthy photographer and celebrity Melissa Conway. Francis and Bobby are invited to Melissa's incredibly fancy home for dinner with her and her semi-famous actor husband, Nick. This is how Francis and Bobby become entwined with Nick and Melissa Conway, respectively. Instantly, Bobby is openly infatuated with Melissa. She talks to Francis about how beautiful and smart and underrated Melissa is and repeat, repeats complaints about Nick's inadequacies as a husband. Meanwhile, Francis is secretly infatuated with Nick. She and Nick begin an awkward and stilted email correspondence after she attends a performance of a play that he is in. And then, when Francis and Bobby are invited to um, Melissa's birthday party, Francis ends up initiating a kiss with Nick, mm -hmm. which begins their awkward and seemingly dispassionate love affair. Mm. The affair ends for a little bit of time without Bobby or Melissa being any the wiser. However, the affair is rekindled when Francis and Bobby are invited to go on an extended foreign vacation with the Conways, where they will all be staying in one home. In um, France, right? Um, yeah, the... I don't, I'm not going to try to say the name. It's the French countryside. Sure. And I get, I'm getting a little confused because most recently I watched the Hulu TV series and I, oh. some facts changed. In okay. the series, they're in Croatia. Oh. They go to a different country for an extended holiday. Sure. Um, as the book goes on, we see how Francis and Nick's affair plays out and impacts Melissa and Bobby. Okay. That seems pretty accurate. I will say at the top, I did not watch and have have no plans to watch the Hulu show, so I can yeah. help you. Your strictly book. Yes. Okay. I thought you would like this because it's cerebral and mm -hmm. slow and mm -hmm. certainly not plot-driven. Correct. 
But then while making notes for this book, I was like, it's so bad, though. Maybe Hannah didn't like it. <laughs> she probably didn't like it. It's so bad. So now I, like, ha- have a signer's guilt. And I, oh, I, I feel like I didn't assign you the right book. And so I don't know. I, I guess maybe you gave it a three. Okay. <laughs> you look so apologetic. Um, first of all, I was excited when you assigned me this book. Because I've been wanting to read Sally Rooney for mm-hmm. a while. I've I had wanted to read Normal People. Yeah. But it's like a forever long wait on Libby, so I'm just still here waiting. But I was excited to go into it, and I think the reasons why you thought I would like it are accurate. It is cerebral, it's character-driven, not plot, uh, slow. And it was an interesting read. It was not a hard read. Yeah. It was easy to read, but like with Speak, where I had a signer's guilt for you, I do not know what to rate this book, Stephanie. (laughs) Perhaps we'll discover it in the conversation. I was writing up notes, and I was like, what do I... I just didn't know. I am not sure if I've ever enjoyed a style of writing so much, but liked the content so little. (laughs) (laughs) I wrote, it was weirdly quick and entertaining to read, but in a can't-look-away-from-the-train-wreck kind of way. Yeah, and that style of writing is, like, really quick staccato sentences. Yes. Like... We're going to talk about that. Yeah, and you've assigned books to me like that in the past, so I kind of thought this writing style, which I hated, might be your jam. I did like the style. Okay. I did not like what it was delivering. Sure. (laughs) So, I don't know. I... Like, Rooney herself, there was a an interview with her at the end of my book... And she she called it, when trying to figure out the genre, she called it a coming of age. Okay. Which I like. You like. And a romance, which I do not. Yeah. I also, I think that's a stretch to call well, it. Well, <laughs> and let's just, let me just go ahead and say the New Yorker review of this novel that I'm going to reference frequently, the title of the review is A New Kind of Adultery Novel. <laughs> so if that tells you anything about why I... I don't like this book and the content of it. Yeah, mm-hmm. there you go. So I ended up giving it two stars on Goodreads. Yeah. Because I guess adultery is the hair in my pancakes. <laughs> but also, it did not have a satisfying enough arc and ending for those characters. I can read books where characters do bad things and go through things, but it right. has to have some kind of payoff at the end. Like, I imagine there's got to be a book out there that contains adultery oh, yeah. that you end up loving. Right. But because it does something for you, though. Yes. It, yeah. And so while I enjoyed the process of reading it and it was not a hard read, I ended scratching my head and, one, not loving adultery because that's not my favorite trope in a book. <laughs> <laughs> and, two, I didn't love what I felt like it was saying about love in general, and relationships. So we'll talk about that, too. Okay, well, is this then our first episode where both of us hate the book? I believe so. Welcome to You Definitely Hate This Book. Buckle up. Get ready for the rant. I did try to, like, zero in on some things I did like. I think it's going to be funny because we're going to dislike it for such different reasons. Like, already I can tell that we're going to dislike it for different reasons. That's good. Well, we can talk about that. Let's still argue on this podcast. Okay. (laughs) We can do that. So what do you want to do first? I don't know. Let's talk about the non-plot. Let's talk about the (laughs) non-plot. Let us talk about it. Nothing really happens, I put. Not a thing. Nope. (laughs) Um, And yet so much happens. 
Well, it's all, I don't know if you said this in your summary, it's all written from a first-person POV of Francis. Yeah. So it's very interior, and when you're in a person's head, it makes you feel like a lot's happening. Psychologically, a lot is happening. She's going through a lot. But really, if I'm looking at it from a third-person, bird's-eye view, not a lot happens, really. I mean, I agree and disagree. Like, in this book... Two lesbian ex-girlfriends who are current best friends get into a romance with a married couple and at different points in time, both of them kiss one of these married people. One of them has an affair. One of them thinks she might be pregnant at some point. They break up twice. They get back together. A man tells his wife that he's having an affair, but he wants to keep his mistress and that mistress keeps hanging out with him. And yet it's so boring. Yeah. How do you have that much stuff going on? And have such a boring book. Because that sounds really salacious. And it it's does not, not read that way. It does not. All that stuff, quote unquote, happens. And at the same time, absolutely nothing happens. No. And most of the problems that you just described, that's one of the things I wrote. Most of the problems in this novel that do propel it forward are either mundane or self-inflicted. Yes. The only exception to me is... Francis, the main character, gets diagnosed with endometriosis, which was one part of the book I found interesting and liked, and I'll read some excerpts later. But other than that, it was like, you've all caused your own problems. I feel no pity for you. Yeah. (laughs) Good day. In an interview that I referenced that was at the back of my book, Rooney said she was asked about people taking this and viewing this book as a modern love story and how she felt about that. Mm. And she said that she was fine with it, and she hopes that readers will take from it, quote, a little solace in dark times, and, quote, the possibility of love. Good grief. I hope this is not a modern love story. Uh, I'm just going to walk off a tall building. I just was like, this book does not accomplish that for me. It might accomplish some other things, and it will probably bring up some interesting talking points, but solace... And no. the possibility of love no. does not do for me. Sorry, no. Sally. <laughs> so one of the things that I mentioned last week, I just finished Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to talk about that book a lot, I promise. I'm going to say <laughs> that right now. But one of the things I really liked about that book was the two main characters, Sam and Sadie, a boy and a girl, have this relationship where they have so much love for each other. But sex is never involved. Mm -hmm. It's a different kind of love. Yeah. And both of them at different points talk about it almost transcending that type of love because they have such an intimate connection in their creative processes and they have grown up together. And I found that really interesting. And I like books that explore relationships that do center on love but that don't have to involve sex Mm -hmm. because I feel like we entangle those too much sometimes and it muddies the water. And that is exactly what this book does. (laughs) Everybody's sleeping with somebody and it's messing up people's relationships that could be beautiful. And I'm just like, I don't understand what's happening. And I feel like, I mean, you mentioned like sex muddling the waters for love. I don't even know that we've got love here. I think we maybe just have sex. For some of them, absolutely. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we just have sex. And I think the sex messes up the possibility of real love for some of them. Yeah. So that's one of the things I hated uh, is that like. There wasn't even any passion behind all of this crazy nonsense that sounds so passionate. Everything that I went off about sounds like it would have a lot of passion behind it. Well, it doesn't. Well, I have a theory about that. Okay. We'll get to it. Okay. When we talk about the writing style. I I just, and I don't like stories centered on adultery. Um, we're, We're talking about the plot. Should we go ahead and talk about the end? Sure. So 
they go through this whole tumultuous relationship and it seems towards the end like things are going to go back to normal Nick and Melissa are no longer, you know, a big part of Francis and Bobby's lives. They're back into their fall semester at university. They seem to have mended fences and they're seen around campus holding hands, whatever. Things seem like... Yeah, it seems like Nick and Melissa are working on their stuff yes. and Bobby and Francis are maybe back together and are working on their stuff. And boundaries have been drawn. Healthy boundaries. Uh-huh. And then... Nick accidentally calls Francis, mm-hmm. and they start talking. And the book ends with her basically saying to him, come and get me. As if they're going to rekindle this affair that was yeah. so helpful to everybody involved. Yeah. Remember why we haven't talked in several months? Because we basically destroyed each other. You want to do that again? Because I'm bored. Yeah. And that's how it ends. And yep. that's why I was like, nope, I can't. Neither one of them apparently learned anything. Right. It's like you you can have problems and make mistakes if you learn from them. Yep. Did no we, character arc. Did we learn anything? We I don't had, think so. We had a character bumpy sidewalk, maybe. There was not an arc. No, no. <laughs> it, it just, yeah, that's what made it fall flat to me. Because there were multiple times in the novel where I kept asking myself, okay, where is this going? Nowhere. That is the correct answer. <laughs> yes, we just circle back. And it's like, great, cool. Well, glad I went on that journey with you. Not. Yeah, and like, man, all of that emotional turmoil really could have made a beautiful book if at the end they're in this entirely new place and like Frances has learned something about herself and why she would do something like that and like... She and Bobby figure out whether or not they want to be together and why that may or may not be. No! Nope. Especially for a coming-of-age novel. That's important. Yeah. She is 21. Come of what age? She she came of no age. <laughs> Same age. <laughs> She's stay. It's a staying of age novel. Yes. Uh, yes, a staying of age mm-hmm, novel. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about some characters? Let's talk about the characters. Oh, this is going to be fun. Oh there are basically goodness. your four main characters. There are yeah. some side ones, but essentially... They're so tangential. It's They're... these four. Yeah. So I found none of them likable. No! Not a one. <laughs> I thought Melissa and Bobby were both annoying for different reasons. Yes. Okay. They were just so into themselves, which I think is why they were into each other. Yes. All of them were into themselves, but in slightly different ways. Yes. I have never seen four more self-absorbed people. And I'm like, okay, so I wrote that the characters are unbearable. Not Mm -hmm. one of them is likable. But if you're going to be unlikable, at least, like, be funny or something. Sure. Like, if you're not a good person, entertain me. They are both bad people and they are boring. <laughs> like Well, and we're getting them all from Francis's perspective only. Right. So there's that filter. And there are some funny moments I'm gonna call out later. But in general, yeah, they were it was not like a funny laugh out loud book. Yeah, so we mostly interact with Francis and Nick. Um, Melissa and Bobby are definitely there too, but mm-hmm. it's all from Francis's perspective and a lot of the time she's alone with Nick. So like You get a lot of that. Yeah, but Bobby, who maybe she was the most likable to me. I don't I thought if I had to pick one, it would probably be her. Only because she seemed the most self-aware. Yeah. But even Bobby, who is the most likable, um, is like extremely willing to recite her extreme leftist views on the evils of owning property and heteronormative ideas and all that stuff. And yet she 
lives a life of complete privilege, never acknowledges oh, yes. that privilege in any way, doesn't, of course, live out any of these values that she will, you know, get into a fight in a bar about. And then she falls for someone who's, like, stupid wealthy. Like, yep, she doesn't... Melissa, you mean. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She doesn't own any of her values. She's just, like, the annoying... I don't like this term because I don't agree with it, but, like, people would call her a feminazi. Yes. And because she's, like, substance-less, but, but will tell you feminist dogma. Her speech is very militant, but her actions do not support the speech she is putting yeah, out Yeah, which at least if you're going to have militant views, mm-hmm. I guess, like, follow them. I don't know. Yes. What So... I read a few reviews of this book that helped me parse through my feelings, but the one I've already referenced in The New Yorker by Alexandra Schwartz, she wrote about this um, and compared it to other Irish novels, because Sally Rooney's Irish. And I loved this quote so much, and it pertains to what you're talking about. Capitalism is to Rooney's young women what Catholicism was to Joyce's young men, a rotten national faith to contend with, though how exactly to resist capitalism when it has sunk its teeth so deep into the human condition remains an open question. <laughs> yeah. Like, we hate this thing, but I'm just going to keep participating but, in it. yeah, I'm going to keep going. <laughs> yeah, and they, like, willingly go on a free vacation to a fancy villa in, like, the south of France. Really, how anti-capitalist are you while you, like, mm-hmm. sit mm-hmm. on a, like, gorgeously lit garden terrace yes. and drink fancy wine. (laughs) Oh, and another review I read in The Guardian was also talking about this Irish connection and said of Rooney, her characters work in the arts and denounce the evils of capitalism while living off inherited wealth. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yeah, it's, um, and that was one of the other issues I felt like I had with the novel. It felt like the audience was very narrow to me. Pretty narrow, yeah. It felt like it was written to a specific privileged pretentious group of people oh my goodness the way they talked was so pretentious and like with like sense of an ending mm-hmm. those they were schoolboys first of all sure. they're essentially children so i can forgive them like being pretentious but it was like played for laughs a little bit like it was funny mm-hmm. watching them be like i'm 16 and pretentious i wear my watch on the inside yes. they're being for real and oh, they're adults. Yes. They are earnest in their they pretension. Are, oh my goodness. I This book that is not even 400 pages references Jean Baudillard and uh, Lacan and other theorists that I'm like, okay, tell me you're in grad school without actually telling me you're in grad school. I was just like, yes. Oh. And we were sometimes just dropped like right in the middle of a conversation mm-hmm. with like Bobby and a random person at like a coffee shop and they're just talking about the evils of such and such thing and yes and the the bourgeois nature of the middle class and... mm-hmm. yeah okay mm-hmm. <laughs> tell me more about it is that. called conversations with friends that is what we got are there any friends in this book except for bobby and francis there are egos <laughs> that bump up against one another because <laughs> i yes. would not call like melissa is not francis's friend no nick and melissa are barely friends they're married but they're not friends with each other um nick is not friends with bobby like bobby and francis are the only quote-unquote friends and at one point in time they're not talking to each other yes 
so that's cool mostly conversations with your inner demons maybe but like not even in a product no i wouldn't even call it that because they don't self-actualize at all <sighs> no <laughs> yeah that's bobby that's melissa i all i wrote all i wrote about nick is he is weak he is weak <laughs> which is exactly how even Melissa describes him. He's too passive. He's weak. I have an excerpt of the email that Melissa writes to Francis describing Nick. Oh, that email. So it's like good. <laughs> three fourths of the way through the novel, when Melissa finds out about their affair, she sends Francis this long email and it's interesting. Should I read least. it now? Go ahead. Okay. I'm putting this in an email because I don't trust Nick to be straight with you about it. He has a weak personality and compulsively tells people what they want to hear. In short, if you're sleeping with my husband because you secretly believe that one day he will be your husband, then you're making a serious mistake. He's not going to divorce me, and if he did, he would never marry you. Equally, if you're sleeping with him because you believe his affection proves you to be a good person or even a smart or attractive person, you should know that Nick is not primarily attracted to good-looking or morally worthy people. He likes partners who take complete responsibility for all his decisions, that's all. You will not be able to draw a sustainable sense of self-respect from this relationship you're in. I'm sure you find his total acquiescence charming now, but over the course of a marriage, it actually becomes quite exhausting. Fighting with him is impossible because he's pathologically submissive and you can't scream at him without hating yourself. Says his wife. And, and I don't, they haven't even been married that long. They're like in their 30s. Yeah. There's like what? one more line at the end of the email that's, I've become so used to seeing him as pathetic and even contemptible that I forget anybody else could love him. Oh, <laughs> but I'm still mad at you. Yeah. For sleeping with him because he's my husband. Talk about reducing a person to a commodity. Like... He is yeah. my husband. I own him, therefore. But I value him very little. She super does not like him. And, like, same girl. Me neither. I found nothing about Nick to be likable. I didn't understand Francis's attraction to him. No! They have, like, the opposite of chemistry. What's the opposite of chemistry? I don't know. I don't know. Um, if you've ever seen Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets, the two lead actors in that, that's the opposite <laughs> of chemistry. <laughs> Yeah, um, so Nick and Francis are having, like, a secret affair, but their conversations are so stilted and awkward, and then they get together and start having sex, which is also stilted and awkward and yes. bland. If you watch the Hulu series, you will be misled. Um, it is not bland sex on the Hulu series, but in the book it definitely is. Yes, it happens a lot throughout the course of the book, but this is not... Like one of those romance novels that you get it's, these long descriptions or anything. This is literary novel sex, not romance novel yeah, sex. Yeah, it's not the same. Um, when Francis tells him that um, she's always doubted, doubted his interest because he didn't seem that enthusiastic, he's just like, I'm just awkward. And she's like, yeah, me too. And then they kiss. Yes. I So I compiled a number of quotes from the book that I, for different reasons, and in the ha-ha <laughs> column, <laughs> since this applies right now, this is after Nick and Francis have their first kind of tiff, mm -hmm. misunderstanding sort of breakup. I'm not even sure. It's so lackluster. <laughs> Francis says, then I read his email again several times. I was relieved he had put the whole thing in lowercase like he always did. It would have been dramatic to introduce capitalization at such a moment of tension. <laughs> of humor 
humor in this book. Not even all caps, but like to use sentence case and capitalize the first letter he, of a sentence. He capitalizes nothing. She would have been like, oh my gosh, stop being sure of dramatic. Yeah. <laughs> Which also, by the way, when she finally does tell him that she loves him, he says, stop being dramatic. <laughs> Do you remember that? Yes. That's exactly oh. the response you want from your secret lover who you've, like, devoted but yourself to. But, of course, to. she does it in, like, this sort of ironic way, like everything else that she does. Mm-hmm. Because she can't say her feelings. Yeah. Everything's ironic. Yeah. Um, Adrian Horton from The Guardian writes, Nick and Francis are two awkward people often behaving awkwardly and passing that awkwardness or, given how little we can discern of these characters, blankness to the audience. Yes, it is like watching two pieces of bread have an affair. <laughs> it, it is, but I also, I kind of understand what she is doing. Everybody in this book is so, I, I said earlier that I implied that they were not self-aware and that Bobby was the most self-aware. I think actually the thing that is happening is they're all way too self-aware mm. and their entire persona is performative. Yeah. They're all thinking too hard about who they are, not just in a conversation in a coffee shop, but also on Twitter and in an email. And they're constantly cultivating this persona that they want to put forth. And you see that a lot with Francis. And they're never actually saying their real feelings. Yeah. Because everything is so carefully monitored and manicured in such a way that I want you to think this thing about me. Yes, and in doing research for, like, this podcast, I found reviewers that both called the characters of this book hyper-self-aware and completely lacking self-awareness because it's, like, self-awareness to the point that you're no longer a person, which makes you seem like you're not self-aware. Yes. So (laughs) another quote from Alexandra Schwartz, New Yorker piece, she wrote, and I, I don't disagree i think she's right this is just what made it insufferable to me sure was one wonderful aspect of rooney's consistently wonderful novel is the fierce clarity with which she examines the self-delusion that so often festers alongside presumed self-knowledge uh yes i know myself so well and i know the self that i am conveying to the world so well and really they're all just self-deluded that yeah that definitely is correct i mean Frances especially, I, oh, I think she Frances thinks she understands gr- who she is, but she has no idea, and it's very annoying to watch. Oh, yes. That same review wrote about Frances, the protagonist of this novel about growing up has no idea just how much of it she has left to do. Oh, yes, like, she yes. really does. That is accurate. I have a quote from Catherine Singh from Refinery29. Um, she said, who among us hasn't felt like our world was imploding or felt emotions strongly? Mm-hmm. But this crippling self-obsession, coupled with the fact that Rooney's books and characters are incredibly white and are so popular in media Mm -hmm. landscape that still often shelves BIPOC characters and stories, it's difficult not to find frustration and fault in yet another mediocre middle-class white woman feeling wounded because she doesn't like her role as a 21-year-old mistress. And it's equally difficult not to be upset that a story like this is framed as if those emotions are the only ones that matter. That is a good way to put how I felt about this book. Yeah, she has the dumbest problem. I intentionally started an affair Mm -hmm. with a man who I already knew was married, who I didn't really get a vibe that he even liked me that much. Now I'm a mistress. Sad me. Yes, she wants to be so different and so intelligent, but she ends up becoming a cliche. Yeah, like, 21-year-old mistress is not, like, not where... 
your graduate student self wants to be. Like, I don't, Mm-mm. I don't like the words like bimbo or stuff like that. But like, that's the cliched understanding of what like a twenty-one-year-old mistress would be, and that's the exact. That's exactly everything she hates about the world. But it's exactly and, what she and becomes. that's what she becomes. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, ugh. the the Guardian review that I'll put in the show notes wrote about Francis. She is unusually contradictory, so clever and yet so blind. Her formidable intellect prompts her to adopt an ironic position towards everything, including herself. She repeatedly declares herself to be emotionally cold, despite evidence to the contrary. But as Bobby points out, I don't think unemotional is a quality someone can have. That's like claiming not to have thoughts. Mm. (laughs) And I think that's... I think that's the thing to play devil's advocate, since we both did not like this book. Sure. Someone should say something nice about this book. I think that's what Rooney is trying to do. How All this about how much we did not love the characters. Yeah. I think that might be part of the point, because they're all so worried about how they're fronting to the world, basically, that they don't actually talk about real things all these conversations with friends that are happening yeah they're performative conversations yes and none of it's real and the big betrayal that happens with bobby and francis isn't even the thing about nick it's that francis publishes a story that she wrote about bobby and bobby tells her i learned more about your feelings for me when i read this than in the four years we've been together as friends or as girlfriends and so that's what i think this novel is trying to show and you do get glimpses of that Again, because the novel is told from Francis's perspective, it's stilted. But you get glimpses of people's real emotion. And I think when you read it carefully, and you do have to kind of read between the lines a little bit, I think she really is in love with Nick. Like, I think she really likes him and has this attraction and this crush on him, but she doesn't know what to do with it because it doesn't fit. Her, like, feminist worldview of, right. like, of hating heteronormativity. Yes. and which is why she's so ironic and sardonic with Nick and with... And she's and, just like, whatever, we can break up, I don't even, like, care. And she's scared of her real feelings. She's scared to feel her real feelings. Yeah, because she's being a cliche. Yes, but also because she's grown up in this way that makes her feel ashamed of feeling real emotion. Yeah, and the thing is, if the novel was doing that, which I agree that it is... The unlikability of the characters and the, like, irony of it all, coupled with the way it's written, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, if it had just been written differently, like, I wrote that a book can be character-driven rather than plot-driven. There are many wonderful books that spend the majority of the time in a character's head rather than, like, watching big dramatic things play out on the page. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to be character-driven, those characters cannot be parked cars. They have to drive somewhere. Like, (laughs) right. The stilted narration, the really staccato sentences coupled with, you know, this really read-between-the-lines lesson and the fact that at the end they haven't gone anywhere, I don't feel like it did what it was trying to do because they just, they didn't go anywhere or do anything. I think this book would have benefited from being told from multiple perspectives instead of just Francis. Because Francis is so young and immature and self-deluded. I think it would have been really interesting to have a chapter from Nick's perspective. And find out who Francis, like, kind of actually is based on someone else seeing her. Exactly, because how am I to know who she really is if it's all... Yeah. Coming through. She's a weird kind of almost unreliable narrator because we know she's constructing this self that she puts forth, but we're supposed to be in her head. Yeah. And she's being really reserved with even the audience. Like we're in 
someone's head, mm -hmm. which is normally the most intimate way of narration mm -hmm. is like, I'm inside your brain while you're narrating this. That's normally where you get like the best intimate information, but she's withholding information even from the audience. And so it just, it just felt so cold and distant, which is what she's called in the book. Well, that's cold what she wants to be. That's what she's trying to craft. And so we see that happening. Yeah. It just made for a very unpleasant read to me. Yes. I think there's enough glimpses that you, if you are looking for it, you can start to tell where her real feelings are coming through, which I think is perhaps very good writing. It just was an exercise I was not inclined to to do. Yeah, like <laughs> I reading. I appreciate that like as a piece of art, she's making this book sound cold and distant because the person who's narrating it wants to be perceived as cold and distant and she's withholding stuff from us as the narrator. Like in a way, it's masterful, but also it was just unbearable. Yes, like it was. Uh. In, in that interview with Rooney at the end of my copy of the book, she even said one of her earlier struggles with writing the book was limiting herself to one perspective and that she often wanted to go. She had idea like she has a backstory for Bobby. Yeah. And, for, and I'm like, why didn't you write that? I know. That would have been so much more interesting. The other haha -ha quote I had pulled from the book. Being annoyed by carefully crafted internet personas was part of my carefully crafted internet persona. <laughs> that is very Francis. Yes. And so as much as I disliked Francis, this is where I just didn't know how to feel about this book. Yeah. Because as much as I disliked her, there were times I related to her. <laughs> I'm going to go on record as admitting. Because she didn't always know what to do with her feelings. Yeah. And I, I also feel that <laughs> yes and your inclination when you're feeling a big feeling is to pretend you're feeling no feelings and to maybe resort to anger <laughs> yes because that's easy um but she doesn't even do that she's no just she just like, like doesn't have anything shut down cold so i have some francisisms francisisms are you are you ready yes we want to do this is this mm -hmm. a good time mm -hmm. these are little quotes that i highlighted i read this on kindle so it was really easy to highlight it was fun here's a peek inside francis's head Things matter to me more than they do to normal people, I thought. I need to relax and let things go. I should experiment with drugs. These thoughts were not unusual for me. <laughs> um, I, I do not want to experiment with drugs, but just to, like, I need to let go of this, perhaps. And I'm like, yes, Francis, you do. I didn't have the courage to really dislike her, but I knew I wanted to. <laughs> I feel like I have heard you say something like that. I was like, oh, called out. Okay. Uh, this one, this one I liked. I lay on the bed in my clothes and wondered if I was going to start feeling some particular emotion like sadness or regret. I just felt a lot of things I didn't know how to identify. I was like, yeah. who is teaching these these characters emotional intelligence? That's one thing we try to focus on with our kids. I'm like, oh, yeah. this is what happens when you don't know how to deal with your emotions. Yes, oh my goodness. I also related to this quote. When you want to go back and explain something that happened in the past, but you feel like too much time has passed, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Francis writes, I wanted to explain that I didn't know how much I was allowed to feel about it or how much of what I felt at the time I was still allowed to feel in retrospect. Yeah. It's like, what are, what are the social norms? What am I allowed to feel now? How much time has passed? Should I have let go? You know, that whole tension is really awkward. And then the final Francisism I'll share. This is talking about Nick. He wanted to reassure me, I could tell, but I wasn't going to let him. People were always wanting me to show some weakness so they could reassure me. It made them feel worthy. I knew all about that. 
oh. I was like, oh, girl, that's tough. But also, I kind of get it. Like, I'm not going to show weakness because that gives you the power. And I was like, oh. Oh, my that's goodness. really sad. Yeah, that quote bummed me out. I know. <laughs> you look very sad. <laughs> she needs some therapy. She really does. Okay, you want to talk some more about the writing? Yeah. Because I do think I liked the writing style. Yeah, going, which is one of the things I thought you would like. I I am going to like read it. normal people. I'm okay. still going to read it, even though I did not like this book. I think the character, based on my research for this podcast, um, normal people has more likable characters. Um, Good. Someone called them uh, grading overall, but redeemable at least in their self-awareness. Okay, so maybe there's a redemption Yeah, arc. like they <sighs> at least are redeemable, apparently, okay. according to this person. Um, let me ask you this. Do you, do you have, do you know anything about Sally Rooney? I really don't, other than Irish. One of the reviews I read about her, she did not start out as a novelist. She started out as a debater. Oh, I think I can see that. Yes, she won, like, the European championship. She's a championship holder of debate. Like, okay. collegiate debate. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um. And so she talks about she really enjoyed the flow that you get into with a debate, but she was also very disturbed by her talent for advocating for morally dubious positions. Oh, man. So she basically... I'm too smart for my own good. So she basically, like, won the whole thing and was like, okay, yeah, now I'm going to take a step back. Yeah. And she's quoted as saying, maybe I stopped debating to see if I could still think of things to say when there weren't any prizes. Oh. <laughs> So, I really like that. She supposedly wrote this novel in like three months in a very much that same kind of flow state that she got in with debate. And the same reviewer I've referenced already, Alexandra Schwartz, she says, the novel gave me the curious feeling that Rooney wasn't always sure where she was going, but that she trusted herself to find out. <laughs> and I was like, I'm not sure I did. <laughs> yeah, um, it definitely does read like that, that she didn't know where she was going with it. And that's why I think it needed editing and some revision. Yes. Um, but I'm glad that other people felt like she wound up where she was supposed to. I just disagree. Yes, but the style in particular, it was very, like you, you mentioned staccato, it's very exacting and uncluttered. It is not purple. Yes, <laughs> Schwartz comments that it was uncluttered with the sort of steroidal imagery and strobe flashes of figurative language that so many dutifully literary novelists employ. Yeah, like, that's... if I'm going to write a literary piece, it has to be yeah full of. These... I need to describe the eggs falling in the frying pan and. But I liked it. It does not. We haven't talked about this yet. There's not a single quotation mark used in the whole book. I listened to it on audio. I didn't oh, really? know that. Okay, so there are no quotation marks for all of the dialogue. Okay. That occur. And I thought that was interesting. I love when authors play with punctuation. Yeah. And this reviewer also pointed out that it just shows the flow of conversation in a world with screens. We don't have to just have conversation face to face. Like the characters in the book, the conversation never ends, which is probably part of their problem because they go from being in person to then texting to then emailing. And it just all flows together in this never ending blah. Yeah. And I enjoyed that play with conventions that she Yeah. Did. I like when someone plays with convention. I think it would have, because I didn't like this book, I think it would have annoyed me more. Right. In, a, in a book that I liked, I would have been like, ooh, look what she did. And a book that I don't like, I would have been like, that's annoying. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
but I did pull, even though the writing was sparse, I did pull some particularly beautiful sentences that I liked from it, just to, again, somebody has to say something nice. Someone has to say something nice. (laughs) Go ahead. When... When Frances talks about Nick, she says he was the first person I had met since Bobby who made me enjoy conversation in the same irrational and sensuous way I enjoyed coffee or loud music. He made me laugh. Oh, I was like, oh, that's nice. I, I like that. The grass had been cut and gave off a warm allergenic smell. The sky was soft like cloth and birds ran over it in long threads. That's that's nice. That is nice. Yeah, I'm, I'm allergic to grass, so I appreciate yeah, um, the allergenic smell. I have several times walked outside in the summer and said it smells like allergies out here. Like, well, there you go. It Tennessee in the summer seriously does smell like allergies. Here's another. The world was like a crumpled ball of newspaper to me, something to kick around. And this one was perhaps my favorite. We were driving along the harbor where the ships implied themselves as concepts behind the fog implied themselves as concepts behind the fog. I like that a lot. That's a nice turn of phrase. Yeah. So even though most of it is very sparse writing. There's some good little bits in there. There are. It had its redeeming moments. And like I said, I felt like I enjoyed the act of reading it, but did not enjoy the book as a whole. That's fair. Do you want to talk a little bit about Francis's illness throughout the book? Yeah. That was one aspect that I appreciated Rooney calling attention to because a lot of women do struggle with some extreme form of menstrual pain um, or something related to being a woman, basically. And so throughout the novel, she has a series of episodes before she finally gets a diagnosis of endometriosis, which I think one in four women... It's it's a lot. It's a high number, and it we know people that are affected by this. Yes, and I read somewhere that on average it takes ten years to get properly diagnosed with endometriosis. Mm-hmm. It is very hard to diagnose without like an exploratory surgery. So I thought that was really interesting, and also the way that she wrote about Francis's pain mm-hmm. throughout all of that was interesting because she's dealing with all these social and emotional things, but she can't ignore her body. Like there is a yeah. physical thing happening to her body that she cannot ignore. And when she finally um, gets her diagnosis, I really liked this passage. I had the sense that something in my life had ended. My image of myself as a whole or normal person, maybe. I realized my life would be full of mundane physical suffering and that there was nothing special about it. Suffering wouldn't make me special and pretending not to suffer wouldn't make me special. Talking about it or even writing about it would not transform the suffering into something useful nothing would. Yeah, I really like that, especially since it seems like she wants to be unique or special right. or in some way. And but just you, you can't escape the human condition. Yeah. So I liked that attention to that particular aspect of culture because, I don't know if you're aware of this, Rooney has been hailed as the voice of our generation, you and me. I have heard that. She is... She has been called by the likes of the Washington Post and the New York Times the first millennial author, truly. Okay. So what do we do with that, Stephanie? We're millennials. I don't know because I didn't care for this. the same age as us. I, first of all, I'm jealous that she's published. Um, Go you. I want to be a millennial author. Um, But I don't know. I don't, I don't like the messages in this. I don't like the way it's written. I don't like the people, which are, they're supposed to be my people, essentially. I don't like them. But do you think they're dealing with problems that our people do deal with? Even though we don't like, and we agree, we do not like these four characters. They're dealing with problems of 
self-doubt and constructing a persona for the world. For sure, yeah. I think those are problems our generation deals with. Yeah, but at least I, like, went to therapy and dealt with mine. Right, Like, (laughs) right. That's I feel like that's why I didn't appreciate it, because I'm like, yeah, these are real problems. We're all facing that, Francis. Yeah. You know, deal with it. (laughs) It was a lot of... My inner thoughts while I was reading this were either, where is this going, or when is somebody going to say the thing they need to say? Yeah. Which is the thing I hate in romance novels. So here we are in a literary novel. Well, I guess I was just thinking, like, Francis, you're not special. Like, yeah, you're trying to figure out your identity. Yeah, you and everybody else. You're trying to figure out if your feelings are valid, what feelings you should still be feeling, if you should share those feelings, how you should share those feelings. You're trying to figure out who you love, what kind of people you love, if it's okay if you love, like, right? yeah, you and everybody else, you're not special, stop trying to, like, make it, like, just go to therapy and deal with your crap like everybody else. Yes. I didn't find you entertaining. I found you self-indulgent and to an annoying extent. Yes. Like, you and I, I mean, this is a very millennial thing to say, which I guess is, it's what you asked. We are the target audience. Yeah. It's not cute to not deal with your problems and to just have Mm -hmm. them spill over onto other people, which is exactly what happens. Like, these people don't deal with their problems and it affects others. Well, our generation is about, like, go and deal with that because you can't just... You're not adorable for having anxiety and depression and trauma and whatever. Like, we've all got trauma. Yes. Even her physical suffering... She passes out a number of times in the book, and she doesn't tell a single person. Her mother takes her to the doctor. She goes and gets the diagnosis, comes out, and her mom's like, what did the doctor say? And she's like, oh, it's fine. She doesn't tell her mom. She doesn't tell Bobby. The first person she finally tells is stupid Nick. Like, (sighs) a year later, practically. Like, Yes, and, you know, people treat her poorly. Like, she passes out in a church in one scene. And this woman goes to help her, and when she tells her, oh, it's okay, it's happened before, the woman looks at her like, basically like what you were saying, like, okay, well, get your act together, deal with your problems. And while that was sad because I knew she was in so much pain because I was in her head, it's also like, yeah, you have people that could help you. You don't have to be wandering around Dublin in the rain in debilitating Like falling down. Yeah. So it was, like, hard. I wanted to feel for her, but it was so hard to. She made it hard. She made her own. They all make their own problems. Yeah. That's what I couldn't stand. Like, it's not that I haven't ever had all of the same thoughts. Like, (laughs) there are lots of times that characters in books, I'm like, oh, I would never do that. I would never think that. I would never want to do that. No. She was, like, annoyingly normal. She had all (laughs) of the same thoughts and feelings and, like possibilities that we all have on a daily basis but then we don't mm-hmm. and, like we go and don't do stupid stuff about it right or you know we do and then we have to suffer consequences you know yep it was almost painful to read because it was so real and you're like i know the solutions for you you know yeah. when i read a fantasy novel i'm like i don't know how to tell you to get out of this wizard's prison <laughs> i'm sorry but here i'm like girl i yeah. have the solution and it is not earth shattering at all i also like I felt like she made a bunch of stupid decisions because she didn't take care of her stuff and then pretty much didn't have to suffer a lot of consequences. Like, the consequence was, like, she feels bad sometimes, but, like, she doesn't lose anything, really. She doesn't doesn't lose Bobby. In the end, she doesn't doesn't lose lose Nick. Nick. Melissa is like, that's annoying that you're having sex with my husband, but they still hang out, the four of them. 
Like, yep. it's super weird. Yeah. Nick says, I didn't like how, like, mundane and passionless it all felt to me. Right. That pretty much Francis was like, hey, so you're here. I would like to have an affair with you. And he was like, that sounds fine. Um, and then they were like, well, I am a little annoyed with you. Maybe we break up. Okay, that's fine. Well, now we're in the same house together. Should we sleep together? Yeah, probably. And then they have, like, that was okay kind of sex. That... You just had the most boring affair. You just blew up your life for the most boring affair. And then eventually Nick is like, hey, I'm going to tell Melissa that I'm having an affair with a 21-year-old. And she's like, well, that's a bummer. And he's like, well, I don't want to get a divorce, but I also am going to keep seeing Francis. And she says, okay, well, I don't love that, but fair. Like, that was all the most mundane boring crap ever but like yeah francis essentially has no repercussions she doesn't lose nick bobby or melissa she i'm not even sure she learns anything she yeah like i've done some really stupid stuff because i didn't know who i was and who i was trying to be and i was trying to form my persona but then i had to deal with the consequences of what i did Mm -hmm. i don't Mm -hmm. know i just kind of want to punch her yeah i did not want to be friends with francis or any of them. <laughs> At least Ants Bundren. Like, I wouldn't want to be friends with him either. <laughs> but, he, I but he was entertaining to read. You know, yes. I don't want to be friends with Francis, but also don't make me read your stupid thoughts. Like, <laughs> yeah. I think she had, it, it was almost like a Chekhov play. Like, I think she, there was passion between her and Nick. But she was concealing it from us, the reader. Yeah. Because she didn't want to feel real emotions. And that's... The irony I kind of love about this book is that it's called Conversations with Friends and none of these friends are conversing about anything important. Yeah. Or the things that they need to be saying. Right. And, like, there's a part of me that finds that really masterful, but also... uh, It's masterful and fun to talk about, but reading? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. One other thing I enjoyed learning about this novel was its relationship to Irish culture and Irish novels. Okay. I mentioned earlier the reviewer who talked about how for these characters, capitalism is what Catholicism was for James Joyce's characters. Yeah. It's like the establishment that I'm going to rail against, but yeah. it's so ingrained in me. The man. <laughs> and Claire Kilroy in The Guardian actually calls it post-Irish because oh. it has gone that step further. So instead of Catholicism, you have capitalism. She also talked about the alcoholic father. Yeah. That is the great stalwart of Irish literature. You can't have Irish literature without the alcoholic father. He's here. Francis has an alcoholic, unreliable father, but he's been, like, shunted to the side. Like, we're done with you. He moved out, doesn't live with her mom, and is barely there. She doesn't have a relationship with him, and it's just like, whatever. It kind of almost like, yeah, we're doing away with the old Irish cultural standbys. Yeah, like, we still got the drunk dad, but at least we don't, like, pay attention to him now. Right, it's like, things have... (laughs) Not changed, but also the way we've dealt with them has changed. We're yeah. not going to give him credit anymore for all our problems. Our problems are our own. <laughs> Which Kilroy also writes, The apparatus of church and state haven't repressed these people. Rather, the women have repressed themselves. They are too guarded to articulate their vulnerabilities. Oh, my goodness. Which is, goes back to what you were saying about she's the that Bobby is like the bad type of feminist. She's so guarded and... She has repressed herself when you don't yeah. articulate your feelings clearly. Yeah. And you're She's putting She's got on... so much intelligence and is not using any of it to be a better, like, person or woman or help anybody do anything. She's because just... in the age of social media and screens, you have to craft your persona to the world. So here you go. 
Oh my goodness. And I thought that was interesting. Yeah. A, a post-Irish, post-Irish millennialist novel. That's very specific. A, yeah. It, like I said, very narrow audience. <laughs> <laughs> and yet you and I fall into it. Here we are. <laughs> Here we are. Sally Rooney is also a very staunch, self-proclaimed Marxist. I think I knew that, yeah. She feels very uncomfortable about her fame. (laughs) I just read a book. Oh my gosh, what is it? It's going to drive me crazy. Where, like, the woman in the book is a writer, but she hates capitalism and fame. And so the fact that she publishes her books and they get recognized, she hates it. Oh my gosh, what book is that? It's it's actually going to drive me crazy. I have to look it up. Yeah, her partner is a math teacher, and she's been on record as saying... You know, I'm not any more important than him or nurses. You should be doing profiles on them in the Washington Post, not me. The Heart's Invisible Furies, which is also Irish. Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. We should just do Irish Month. Yeah. The Heart's Invisible Furies by John Boyne, which I loved, by the way, but I won't recommend it to you because I also think you would love it. So we can't do it for this podcast. I can recommend it to you for real life, not for this podcast. Maybe like the month of December in the spirit of Christmas. Yeah. (laughs) Just pick books we love. I gift you <laughs> The Heart's Invisible Furies. That's cool. Um, it. It's like this book, but if it were good. Okay. <laughs> I'll try it. <laughs> I wanted this. I wanted to like this book more than yeah. I did. It had, like, the right pieces. Yeah. And, and it just... The Heart's Invisible Furies has all of those same pieces, but then does something with them. Okay, well, maybe I'll read that. Cool. Okay. Would you like to read? Some one-star reviews. I've never been more excited (laughs) to read one-star reviews than right now. All right, there you go. Okay, here's from Jen. I'd rather have a conversation with the wall. (laughs) Lark. The language is precise. The sentences have a staccato rhythm that I first found appealing, but after a while, they made me feel as if they were a ball-peen hammer tapping on my head as I read along. Many of the scenes seemed unnecessary. The book seemed unnecessary. (laughs) Thanks, Lark. That's a good name. TJ. Also, I think he uses no capitals. Capital letters. That's cool. Mm -hmm. Usually Sally Rooney books make me feel like shit in a good way, but this one just made me feel like shit, period. (laughs) I think the difference is typically while her characters go through highs and lows, grow together and apart, and hurt each other along the way, there is still a thread connecting them and making it clear they are each other's people. They have a special connection that cannot be replicated that keeps them coming back to each other, and that's what makes all the pain beautiful and bittersweet and worth it. I did not feel that with this book. Ultimately, though, this was a confirmation that my mental health is not built for affairs because, bro, I could never. <laughs> Dude, same, TJ. I was thinking that that, like, would really resonate with you because I feel like you've said before, like, I just couldn't. I, 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 I could have written that review. I know. Like, that one <laughs> sentence of just, like, I could never with an affair. Like, this is too stressful. I, like, nope. It, yeah. Ugh. Yeah, <laughs> when they're, like, carrying on in that French countryside and his wife is in the house. Yeah. I could. I don't think I could enjoy anything. I would just be too uptight. I know. Nervous. Like you're such a rule follower. Ugh. That one sentence. I was like, that's so Hannah. <laughs> yep. And finally, from David, it's maybe a tenth as clever as it thinks it is. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought mm-hmm. was nice for people who really think they're quite clever oh, in yes. this book. And I was like, okay. But for such clever people, they're so emotionally stunted. Okay, well, that was interesting. Yep. Uh, (laughs) Sorry that no one liked a book this week. (laughs) 
we did say you might hate this book. And we sure did. But I am still going to read Normal People. Okay. So I'll check in. I think that it probably is better than this one. And, you know. I've heard from people I trust that of her three, that is her best. Okay. Well, I wish you luck in that endeavor. I'm not going to read it. That's fine. I'll just, you can live through me. (laughs) Do you remember what book we're doing next? Eats, shoots, and leaves. Okay, I knew I assigned it, but I couldn't remember which. <laughs> that's one That's the was. one I have on my coffee table that I, or my bed, my nightstand that I'm like supposed to read. Well, that's the one we're doing now. Great. <laughs> so next month, July, we're going back to our standard. I have assigned Stephanie a book I loved that I think she might hate, and it is my first nonfiction that I have assigned. I'm her. excited. She assigned me one many moons ago. Yeah, like episode. Five, early on. Yes. Um, but this is very different than I'll Be Gone in the Dark. I have assigned her Lynn Truss's book, Eats, Shoots, and Leaves. It's a book about grammar. <laughs> Which I'm a little bit excited about. Well, well, we'll have to tell you how it goes next week. Thank you for listening to You Might Hate This Book. Join us again next week for more discussion of the books we love. And the books we hate. You can help others find this podcast by leaving us a review and a five-star rating. And don't forget to hit subscribe. You can offer additional support and earn cool perks by joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash hatethisbookpod. And thank you to our newest patron, Caitlin. Thank you so much for joining our Patreon. Thank you, Caitlin. Special thanks to Monarchy Workshop. See you next week. You're so clever and yet quite dumb. Mm Mm-hmm, self-deluded.